My name is Jeff Lerner, and I interview elite performers from a wide range of disciplines, entrepreneurs, athletes, celebrities, scientists, artists, and more. This is Unlock Your Potential. Hi there, Jeff Lerner, your host of Unlock Your Potential. So glad to be back with you, having amazing conversations with amazing human beings. Uh, today, we are joined by a gentleman named Nick Bradley. He actually comes out of the private equity space, over $5 billion in transactions. He bought, helped buy and sell 22 different businesses, but left that space to be an entrepreneur. And now he's, he's kind of at this place where he, he helps businesses grow. He helps business owners exit. And he's a real kindred spirit with me, meaning two things, which uh, one is he's very into personal development and he's very into um, sort of using the mind to improve the life um, but the other way that he's like me is that he came by that through a lot of hardship and a lot of pain. And really listening to his story, I just took so much away. And I'm very confident that you will too. And I'm excited to share it with you. So without further ado, enjoy my conversation with Nick Bradley. Walk me through your, your ramp up into the world of entrepreneurship and the kinds of things that you're doing today. How did it all start? So it started, it started when I was 18 years of age, where I decided to start a business. So let's call that the tra traditional entrepreneurial pathway. And that was a personal training business back in the late 80s. So I may look young for anyone who's watching this on YouTube or whatever else, but I'm actually 48, right? So I've been around the block a few times and I was into fitness at a young age and started this company where no one had ever heard of personal training. So the, like a novelty, right? So, so the 48, so this was 30 years ago. This was what, 1992 uh, then? Yeah, it was uh, around 91. Yeah, okay. exactly. And um, of course, the people who entertained the idea of personal training or could afford to have it were things like people who were stockbrokers, lawyers, um, doctors, all that sort of thing, right? So I had that business and here's my big claim to fame. My first exit three years later was for 3000 Australian dollars. Right, three thousand. That, that's probably like a Starbucks coffee these days. Right, so it was massively successful, Jeff, as you can see. But well, how, well, how, how much did you invest in it? I mean, you might have had infinite ROI for all we know. Well, from an ROI perspective, it was amazing. But I don't tell that story. I mean, the, the reality of it is, I had this itch to become entrepreneurial at a young age. I scratched that itch, had some success with it. You know, it wasn't an unsuccessful business in terms of what it was creating lifestyle wise for me. I was studying a marketing degree at the same time. I had three employees. I was cashed up for a guy who was in his late teens, mm -hmm. but I kind of sabotaged it. And I sabotaged it because of the environment that I was in at the time. So I didn't have any real entrepreneurial influence around me. I grew up in a place called Adelaide, South Australia, which is, um, if you look it up, it's got great wine regions, but that's about it, right? It's kind of sucked in the middle between the East Coast and the West Coast of Australia. So not much happens there. And I had all these people around me telling me that if you're an entrepreneur, it's really risky, right? You're not going to be successful. What happens if it all comes crashing down? And so I decided to do two things, which actually looking back in hindsight really served me. The first thing was to sell the business. And I realized that being an entrepreneur in that place at that time doing what I was doing was not really what I wanted to lean into. And the second decision I made was that in that environment that I was in, it was going to be challenging, right? So I needed to change my environment. So when I sold that business, the value I got from it was not really the 3000 bucks. The value I got was a connection by one of my clients to Rupert Murdoch. Mm. And I meant, <laughs> crazy, right? And I remember packing up all of my stuff and putting it into the back of my Ford laser car that I had at the time, driving from Adelaide to Sydney and effectively meeting like, you know, the network around um, Rupert Murdoch and ended up working for News International for a number of years in marketing and corporate strategy. And that was my first, I suppose, foray into the world of acquisitions and M&A and things like that. So you were what age when you started working for, for News Corp? 22. 22. Okay. And so as an aside for all of us uh, geographically challenged Americans out there, <laughs> I, have, I have Google mapped Adelaide. And indeed, it is on the south side of Australia where, uh, see, I thought, I thought that Australia coming around south, I thought it ended at Melbourne. I didn't know you could keep going. Well, see, that's why. That's exactly why I had to leave. But there is, there is a funny story here that, that Adelaide is famous for three things, right? 
churches, like there are so many church spires there, it's, it's off the charts. I don't even know why, right? So you've got that. Then you've got sharks, like big, great white sharks, because we're really close to sort of, you know, as you said, the Southern Point, cold waters. And a lot of the right. open um, scenes from Jaws, the original Jaws film, were actually filmed in South Australian waters. Quite, mm. not, not, not many people know that. And then the third thing is serial killers. We have more serial killers per head of population than any other um, city in the world. Okay, so you're you're not going to toss that one up and not have me go after it. Uh, any explanation on that point? Any theories circulating? It's a boring place. It's boring. Okay. <laughs> no, I, listen. I, idle hands, right? Idle hands literally are the devil's workshop. I guess there are there are lots of movies made around um, crazy serial killings in in South Australia. But but you know, I, I joke about that, saying, well, obviously it was a place that I had to get out of. But the reality of it is, when you're when you're isolated and it's a big country, right? There isn't much that happens there. If you were going to work in any global business, you had to go to the East Coast. Mm-hmm. Um, if you had a business that was going to be more service-based, you could survive in a place like that. But for me, I just had a different ambition um, and I was starting to, to sort of understand that more around that age. So I will say, I mean, lesson and, and maybe to some degree, and actually this might be interesting for you to weigh in on is the degree to which you think this is changing, but uh, geography matters a lot, right? Um, you know, I, I remember a, a saying I heard once, I don't remember it exactly, but it was like, it was like a pun on the term city limits. Like your limits have a lot to do with your city limits, yeah. depending on where you are. So, that, so I'm curious, how, how much do you think, like if you were starting now in Adelaide, do you think you would still have to make that move or has the world changed enough that it wouldn't matter as much? I, I think the world has changed since I was there, you know, effectively 30 odd years ago, but it was, it, it's more the fact of the, the mindset that I had developed based on who I was hanging around with was the mm. thing I needed to move away from. So I think you can be successful anywhere if you have the right people around you that are guiding you. And obviously these days, you know, we have more connection because of digital and technology than we had back then. But for me, it was, you know, well, I just needed to be around a different different type of people doing different things. Um, and I look back in hindsight now, Jeff, and get that probably at the time it was more of a, I need to do something different, but I didn't quite understand exactly what was pulling me in that direction. Interesting. Okay. So, so you end up in News Corp at 22. Um, how many people, do, do you have any idea how many people work for News Corp? Oh God, it was, it was tens of thousands, if not thousands. I'm not sure what it is these days, but I mean, it was a behemoth. I, I, I managed to get introduced at the right level. So the, the, the story around it, and again, I'll, I'll, I'll keep this quick for everybody, is I had an introduction up to Lachlan Murdoch. Okay, so that's Rupert Murdoch's son. Okay. And I, I got, that connection was because I knew someone who knew someone. And in that meeting, he said to me, listen, you know, we've got a job going on men's health magazine for, for a marketing manager, but you know, you're not qualified. You've got a marketing degree and you've worked in a gym, but like, this is a pretty right. big gig, right? A global brand. So he said, I'll introduce you to the marketing director and we'll see if there's a fit somewhere in the business, but it's it kind of sowed the seed. Oh, men's health marketing manager. How cool would that be? Right. Right. So anyway, that day I met with um, the lady, Sandra, who was the CMO there. And she said, listen, you're not going to get this job, but why don't you just send me some thoughts about how you would approach it anyway? And from that, I'll see if you can find, we can find something else for you. So anyway, I went home that night. It was like four o'clock. I met her in the afternoon. I remember this as clear as day. And I didn't go to sleep that night. And around 10 a.m. the next morning, I submitted this like 35 page prospectus, a little bit like a Jerry Maguire memo. Right, mm-hmm. right. right. And it was, it was as good as I could do based on my understanding. And about an hour and a half after I'd dropped that off, because you couldn't really email it, it was kind of physically dropped off. I got a call from her saying, we're going to offer you the job on men's health. And that then changed my whole trajectory because I jumped a number of levels ahead of probably where I, everyone would have perceived I should have been at that time. So luck is when opportunity meets preparation, right? Um, I'm also hearing Eminem in my mind saying, <laughs> here I go. It's my shot. Feet fail me not. This might be the only opportunity that I've got. Right. So, I mean, you, you had, you had a shot. Yeah. And I run to that song all the time, by the way. That's one of my favorite songs. Oh, that's a, that's a hell of a workout song. 
Oh yeah, it is. Yeah. If I ever need some any any external motivation, I'll play that song just to kind of get myself on point. Yeah, it's it's that song is a is about the pinnacle of like auditory motivation. I, I will give it to you. Um, so okay, so so uh, let's let's unpack this a little bit. All right, um, you're 22. You what? You got a college degree in marketing? Is, did you finish yeah, college? Yeah. I finished it. Yeah, I finished it. So I got it. It was basically a bachelor of business and a major in marketing and a minor in finance. To be specific. Okay. So, and then, so at 22, if I'm getting this right, you land the job as the marketing manager of Men's Health Magazine. That's correct. Yeah. Okay. So, so what, what do you think? I'm always, I mean, this show is called Unlock Your Potential, right? Like we are probing wherever we have to go to get the code to unlocking human potential. So whenever I hear these stories of like somebody, you know, call it skipping the line or dramatically ascending quickly, like we, we got to dig into this. What, what, what was it, man? What, what, it, what got tapped into in you in that 35 page prospectus that allowed you to outperform? I mean, it's not like there's any shortage of candidates at any given time applying for that type of job. What the hell happened, man? So I think looking back on it now, and again, as I said, hindsight helps these these conversations, right? There's two things that happen. One, I was networked in, right? So you can't go out of the bounds of, you know, this lady, Sandra, who was the CMO, you know, I was put in front of her by Lachlan Murdoch, the son okay. of the owner, right? So you can't get away from that. that, that's there. Then the other thing that happened is, and this is probably more of a personal thing for me, my grandfather, who was, who was one of the most uh, important male influences when I was growing up, he always used to say, whenever you have the opportunity to do anything, make sure that you can always live with yourself no matter what the outcome is, right? So if you do the best you possibly can and you don't get it, there's nothing more that you could have done. And so my mindset at the time was, I have an opportunity here to change something. I, I did recognize there was a, a shift that could happen here. If I got this job, it would open up so many different pathways and also cement my ability to live in Sydney. Cause I turned up there with, as we said, 3000 bucks. That's not a lot of cash, mm -hmm. right? And that's an, uh, I assume that was then as it is now in a very expensive city to live in. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's probably, it's changed a bit, but even then it wasn't much. It probably gave me about three weeks okay. to be able to be there. <clears throat> so, so for me, it was about, I had this opportunity if I'm just going to go deep, I'm going to go deep, put everything I possibly can into this. If it's great, then you know what, maybe I'll get the job. But if it's not, you know what, I tried everything I possibly could given that point of opportunity. Okay. So, so two questions then one is how did you make the, the connection to uh, Lachlan Murdoch? So it was through a doctor, a surgeon that I was training in my personal training business in Adelaide. Okay, so why did your personal training client introduce his teenage trainer, or maybe you were 20 or 20, whatever, however old you are, your young, you know, trainer, why, why would this client introduce his young trainer to that person? So the one thing I learned from having a personal training business, and this is something that I've taken with me in any role I've had since, is how important the sort of depth of human connection is. So I wasn't just there training the guy, you know, he was going through some, some situations with his wife at the time and other things. And so you almost are doing this kind of pseudo therapy. So three times a week, I was his outlet in different ways, right? Talking as well as physical and I, and I got him in great shape and he was very um, grateful of what I'd done, but he just had an admiration for me because I was helping him through a challenging time. So when I said, I want to sell the business and I sold it to a friend actually. So I was very considered about making sure that my clients, had someone else that I respected. So all of that was done well. He was like, let me, let me help you out. What do you want to do in Sydney? And I said, well, I, I'd want to either work in media or sport. You know, I'd like to move more into the business world. So I had that sort of ambition. And he said, I might be able to connect you with a couple of people. Okay. So my, my questions here are, are very in intentional because sure. um, I'm trying to sort of flush out a point, which, is, you know, how old was the doctor? Um, 50, late fifties. Okay. So my point is, and you were what, let's say 20, 21 at the time. Yeah, 21, 22, something like that. Okay. Yeah. So 21, 22 year olds call it kid. Who's being very thoughtful and attentive and thorough and caring and empathetic and service oriented to a late fifties personal training client. 
And because of how you showed up in that relationship, it opened up this door, this opportunity. It didn't guarantee the opportunity, just opened it up, right? Through yeah. more maneuvering that you had to do to make it happen that, that, I mean, is it safe to say, unlocked a trajectory that, again, you've had to be the one to make, to, to capitalize on it, but it would not have happened if you had not taken care of that client at 21 years old in that way. Perfectly summarized. And, and again, like, you know, just to make comment on that, there were certain points in my career, which we can touch on where there were opportunities that I think were sh shifters, game changers in terms of what they allowed. Probably about four or five in total. And this was the first one that, that made me realize, you know, A, when that door opens to use your, your language, you have to absolutely go through it, you know, with precision, with pace, whatever you want to call it. And so to sort of bring the point uh, to its culmination, was there any, for how many clients did you have at that time as a trainer? I was doing about 40 contact hours. So some were, some were training two or three times a week. So I probably had about, let's say 15 clients, but then I had other staff training others. So it was a, it was a reasonable business for the Okay. For the time. So let's say there were, there were 20, 25 customers being serviced at that yep, time. That's about right. Yeah. Did any of the other 20 or 25 open an equivalent size of door for you through the relationship? I had a number of people open doors and some of them were also significant in different ways. So that, that in itself, I was, you know, it was funny when I, when I made that decision to say I was moving to Sydney, a lot of people then offered to help in different ways. Uh, this is the one that was it the biggest door. It probably was considering what it out, what it became, but I right. didn't even know it was going to get open. The door was actually opened when I was in Sydney. It wasn't organized beforehand. So I already made the shift. I was over there working in a gym and working in a clothes store trying to find a job, if you like, or certainly a job that could take me to what I wanted to achieve. And then the door was opened. And did you have any way at the time when you were taking care of these clients as a trainer to predict which of these relationships could bear future fruit in this way? No. no okay. I, I so you get, the, you get the point that I'm making. Oh, yeah. Like totally. in life, the difference between extraordinarily successful and humdrum, nothing to write home about results very often is small attention to doing things with excellence in ways that you cannot possibly anticipate what the payoff is going to be. Yeah. And that's, I, and you know, I, I think that there's, I, we live in a world now that wants to sort of genericize concepts like success and affluence and prosperity and whether it's business success or person, everybody think, and I don't want to be in black and white terms, but like generally there's a tendency to think, Oh, like they got lucky or um, it, it, it could happen for them, but it couldn't happen for me. And I am such an ardent believer that if you will discipline yourself to doing little things consistently with excellence for a long enough period of time, I forget who said it, but it's inconceivable that if you do the right things the right way for long enough over a long enough time horizon, it's inconceivable that it wouldn't pay off at some point. Yeah, I fully agree with that. And the other thing I think that I, I recognize now is I wasn't looking for any other outcome than being present with my clients at the time and making sure that they got what I could help them with. So where do you think you, I mean, this is not, and admittedly, I, this was 30, like you said, 30 years ago or almost 30 years ago. And I don't know, 30 years ago, I was 13. So maybe I didn't have the perspective on the world that I do now, but I would say generally this level of awareness and, and I like your term presence being present is not what we typically associate with a 20, 21 year old. No. Well, where do you, all that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And where, where do you think you, you developed that aspect of yourself? So two things happened when I was growing up. So the first thing was my dad left our family when I was two, you know, marriage breakup, all that sort of stuff. And that created a lot of uncertainty for my mum, who was then left to raise me. Now, how that showed up was two things which were quite interesting, which I now again can look back on and say, wow, they really served me moving forwards. One was that level of awareness or appreciation, I had to learn that at a very young age because my mum wasn't in a state emotionally to deal with a lot of stuff was going on. She ended up having 
multiple relationships, other marriages. And I, I just had this spidey sense, right, of, of who was, you know, on point, a good person who wasn't. And I just developed that really early on. And I still have that ability today, which has served me massively in different things I've done. The second thing was my grandfather, as I mentioned previously, had to step in and be the man, the male influence in my life. And he was a hard dude. I mean, this guy, he ended up one, one day he was saving this, this girl who was locked in a car out the front of his house by these three guys. He ended up getting stabbed and going to hospital because he was, he was threw himself into a situation like that. So, so I had this guy like that who had very, dare I say it, traditional values. Right, service values. Like old school. Yeah, like yeah. almost military level stuff that you might yeah, see. That's yeah. probably the only example I can see today where you see similar levels of those values. But back then, it was kind of how people were brought up. So to your point now that people expect just to get stuff and success is handed to you and all that. He wasn't like that. I wasn't brought up like that. So I realized that there was a certain amount of graft, intention, focus, discipline that needed to be done to be successful. So I learned that early on as well. Yeah, you, you're you're making me think of, you know, Stephen Covey writes about how sort of like pre mid 20th century society was dominated by what he calls a character ethic. And in the latter half of the last century, we shifted toward this personality ethic, right? Like if you're charismatic and you're enthusiastic and you're the life of the party, then like good things will happen. But it used to be like, no, if you're just like honorable, honest, diligent, consistent, then like that was the substance of your being. And uh, I, I love, I mean, I, I hear you sort of hearkening to, to the timelessness of character ethic. Yeah. Uh, and I, and which, I think it's a differentiator now, if I'm honest, Jeff. I think, oh yeah. I know, totally I, agree. Talk, talk more about that, by the way, in the world of social media and optics, like, please talk more about that. Yeah. I, I think, you know, there, there's some certain, there's some certain things I think that I've seen in my career and most of it's in private equity, as I'm sure we'll get into and the people who were very successful, I think, in, in that world, which is a very cutthroat world. I mean, you know, it's toxic, but also quite brilliant in terms of some of the things you, you see and get exposed to. There's a certain code that, that is, is, is successful in that world. It's not just about intelligence. It's about how you deal with your fellow person, human. And it's a little bit, if I go back, it, it's almost like an unwritten code where you have to have honor to some extent. You have to have discipline. I'll use that word again. Uh, relationships are important, but there has to be a, a depth behind them. And, you know, there's, there's the value in the shaking of the hand and looking someone in the eyes, right, that I sometimes think gets missed in where we are today. But when it shows up, right, you still see it, right? When it shows up, it stands out like nothing else. And because of the way we're wired as humans, that connection's important. Doing what you say you'll do is important, right? That sort of thing. But I, I think we, that's the one message I think that people need to get to learn, particularly as they're maybe growing up and joining the professional world these days. If you can lean into the stuff that is timeless, you're ultimately going to be more successful, in my opinion. Yeah, you know, I was listening to uh, something this morning, actually a really good interesting book I'll, I'll share with you. It's called How Leadership Actually Works. Oh, cool. And it's by, a, it's by Larry Yatch. And he's a, he's a very good friend. Of, he's a really good friend of mine, personal friend. So disclaimer there, I'm referring you to a, a friend's book. But yeah, I, I, what I love about it, and then I'll, I'll connect it to, to what we're talking about is, so Larry, he's a former Navy SEAL uh, team leader, was in the SEALs for, for a decade. Um, and uh, one of the things he talks about, and it, it's kind of unique among all the like, you know, there's this group of guys out there, they're like SEAL guys, right? And that's, that's part of their pedigree. And they're bringing like SEAL strategies into private, you know, the, the corporate world, right? But yeah. one of the things he says is like a lot like SEAL leadership style and SEAL management strategies are based on leading teams of Navy SEALs. And if you're ever lucky enough to get to lead, lead a team of Navy SEALs, you'll know what it's like to have a team that consists entirely of world-class A players, but very few teams in the civilian world <laughs> are, are a comparable to a team, of, a team of Navy SEALs. And so a lot of the leadership strategies have to be modified in the real world because you're not managing the world's number one like weapons, explosive weapons specialist and the world's number one field medic and the world's number one guy who can sprint while holding a canoe over his head. And like, 
Most teams are comprised of more average people, right? And so you kind of have to tweak your leadership. Anyway, so it's a really interesting book because he starts with that observation and then- I like that. As a adapt. distinction, that's, that's, that's true, isn't it? I think, um, but you know what? In, in, in my world, the hiring of as many people like that as you possibly can is, is one of the things that makes a big difference. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, yeah. I will say, I mean, as somebody who's, who's going through, uh, you know, a four-year rapid scaling project of a business where, you know, the bigger and better you get, the better the talent you can more easily attract, but you yeah. always want to be attracting the best talent you can get at any given level and finding the best reasons for the best talent. Even if it's a chance to take a chance on you, like it, whatever you got to do to get a better person is usually the right thing to do. Um, yeah, I agree. But, but anyway, that I, I digress. But, but the reason I brought that up is one of the things he was talking about in his book is he was talking about what I'm sure you're very aware of the Stanford marshmallow experiment, right? Where they, they get kids. And for anybody that doesn't know very quickly, essentially it's, it's the original experiment that that posited and proved out that delayed gratification, the ability to wait for your rewards, was the single greatest predictor of future success across all dimensions of life. And basically, if you're a kid and you can wait to eat a marshmallow for 15 minutes so that you can earn a second marshmallow, you are less likely to get addicted to drugs, less likely to get divorced, more likely to to make six figures and all the other ways we quantify uh, a quality life, right? And so uh, anyway, but what he was saying is they're currently trying to debunk the Stanford marshmallow experiment. And I won't get into how emblematic this is of the times we live in, except that I kind of just did. But you did. I know exactly yeah, what you're going you, you saw what I did there, right? Oh, but, but they're trying to debunk it by saying, oh, well, it was a biased sample group because people that came from harder backgrounds or different classes or different this or different that they, you know, they had the deck stacked against them to be able to wait for the second marshmallow. Right. And so, uh, but, but what's, but Larry says is he's like, hold on a second. If there's anything that will teach a kid delayed gratification, it's having a, it's growing up in a tough environment where like you bite your tongue or you get your ass kicked. Right. And so you mentioned, and I don't know, I don't, you didn't really describe your environment growing up, but I think it's really important that wh whether you had a hard time growing up or not, I don't know. And I'd love to hear you talk about if you feel like you did or didn't. But in general, I want people to start to associate their hardships with opportunities to develop the most valuable skills in life rather than coming up with excuses for why they never do. Hey there, sorry to interrupt the show, but I just have a quick favor to ask. So we recently broke into the top 100 podcasts in the entrepreneurship category. We've been hovering around 75 and we're really trying to push up into like the top 20 and grow the impact of the show. So if you enjoy what we do here and you're a supporter, the biggest thing you could do to help would be to leave us a positive review. Uh, whatever platform you're listening on, you should be able to leave a quick review. Let the world know what you like about the show. Thank you so much for your time and uh, let's get back to it. Listen, I, I found the, the people who have had, and not, and not in all cases what I say this, but certainly the ones that I've experienced that have had some degree of hardship or challenge growing up and have overcome that in whatever way you define that, have tended to be to go on to then be more successful and also more appreciative of the different things around them. And I think those two those things are intrinsically linked. And my, my background, just to share it, when my dad left, and my mum was going through all the stuff that she was going through. The way I coped with that was getting incredibly overweight. So I was the fattest kid in school. In fact, I was the fattest kid in my states, like South Australia. Like they did this thing called a, a skin fold test. And I was like the same weight I am now. In fact, 15 to 20 kilos more than what I am now. I weighed when I was 10. And how tall are you now? And how tall were you then? So I was quite, I'm six foot two now. Back then I was about five, eight, five, nine, but I weigh 78 kilos now. And I was something like a hundred kilos when I was that age. So let me interject real quick biographical question. How many marathons and how many ultra marathons have you completed at this age? 46 right now, 67 marathons, 24 ultra marathons. Okay. I knew that. I wanted to make sure the audience knew that too. <laughs> yes. Yeah, there's a, there's a story behind that, I think, which is interesting too. But I went through a transition. You know, I said beforehand how that introduction to work at News International was one of those doors. When I were, was, you, were you really out of shape at that time? Not, not back, not then. No, no. Oh, I, you had I, gone through the transition because you had oh, already, God, you'd no, already no. done your training business. 
I, I went through another opportunity when I was younger where I had the I, I was given the opportunity to change that trajectory, to use that same term again, transformation. And I remember over the course of about 18 months, it took me about 18 months to get from being the fattest kid in school to competing for some of the top sports teams in school and getting interest from girls at sort of 15 and all sorts of stuff. I ended up modeling for a while. All sorts of things happened. But if you'd seen the photo of Nick at 10 versus the photo of Nick at 18 with his gym business. Yeah. Massive shift. But that all happened again. It comes from, and I think this is an interesting point for people to hear. When I've had pain, there's a point, it's happened a few times in my life, when I've had extreme pain where I've just said, you know what, enough is enough. I'm better than this or I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm going to change the situation and it's come from that void, then I've managed to dig deep and find something in myself which has allowed me to step up. And it's happened a few times, but the first time was when I was around that 10, 11 years of age. You have any before and after pictures laying around? Oh, yeah. I posted one on LinkedIn and someone, yeah. someone accused me of fat shaming. Oh, my, <laughs> I, Right. Yeah, so I was like, who's this? Because the LinkedIn post was, who's this fat kid? And it was me. And like, that was the joke, right? But someone's like, how can you call that person fat? I was like, well, I can call myself fat, can't I? Because I was. Yeah, I think we have the right to call ourselves whatever name we want. Like, exactly. Yes. I, I think that's, that's one right that I don't think they'll be able to cancel, or at least they shouldn't. They shouldn't. Um, yeah. And, and by the way, I'm sharing this. I mean, the audience, some of them will see this, but I mean, that's mine. Right. Oh, wow. And, and I, and I share that because, you know, I've done a couple hundred of these interviews now with elite high performing people, most of them in business, but some of them athletes, some of them, other types of celebrities. And there, there are these catharsis transformations. Like I wish we could, I wish I could start finding lots of examples of really successful people that didn't have to suffer so extremely or excruciatingly. Yeah. like that would be nice. But it, there seems to be this commonality, you know, of, of a valley, a deep, dark, you know, what, what do they call that? The, the dark something of the night, like the torment of the soul, or I don't know, whatever yeah. the, the, the crucible is bef- that precedes the, the catharsis and the redemption. And um, that's just like a common theme. And, and so, you know, I, I, I say that and I repeat that as a theme because I feel like for a lot of the listeners out there, like we don't know, I don't know where you are, but it's, it's unlikely that you're as low as Nick was at his lowest or I was at my lowest or, or as you were at your lowest. Like this is probably not the lowest day of your life and it's not the highest day of your life. Like we have this oscillating journey of life and I just like to remind people that like it usually sucks before it doesn't. Yeah, I think I think the term is it's always it was it the light is always darkest before the dawn or something yeah. like that, right? And yeah. and I found and I've delved into this since in terms of my own personal development journey with different types of mentors and gurus or whatever. And I you know there's there's this this thought that I think is quite interesting and I'm still trying to process it myself around the idea that if you have extreme voids, right? You know, you should expect to have a high at the end of that. And the problem with that a little bit is if you have extreme lows, extreme highs, that's when you can get yourself a lot out of balance. And actually it's better to have, you know, something that's not necessarily a straight line, but to have the dips not quite as extreme. And the example I think is, you know, when you see these kind of celebrities, like they, they end up doing things like big brother or whatever, and then they end up committing suicide very quickly afterwards, or someone wins the lottery and then they lose the money quickly afterwards. They've had this mm-hmm. massive high and then they ha- and then the natural cycle is to have the low. And I think if you understand that, you know, whenever there is something bad happening in life or whatever else, there's always going to be an upside if you find it. And equally, if you're having an amazing period of time, don't expect that that's always going to be there forever because it's going to counterbalance. I found that as I've lent into that and learnt it more, it's helped me just understand different decisions and different experiences that I've had. Not for everyone, but certainly has worked for me. So let me ask you this then, um, as you start to, you know, ascend the grade of, of success in life and, and you kind of reach presumably a point where you're at least insulated, theoretically, I mean, maybe these are famous last words, that you're theoretically insulated from like total calamity, right? Like I'm assuming that 
Nick Bradley is at a, is at a point in his life where it would take an extremely unlikely series of events for you to wake up one day and be like broke, homeless, alone, lonely, forgotten with no opportunity, right? Like you'd have to tumble pretty far, right? Yeah. And, and so you reach this point where it's like, okay, I don't have the fear, let's call it, to motivate me because like life is good. Um, how do you make sure you keep your edge? So I, I went through a, I'll, I'll jump ahead a bit here because there's, there's, a, there's a lot in the middle of the story. But when I, when I decided to leave the world of private equity, I had another pretty painful experience. Okay. And, and there's a lot of things that happened. Um, probably the first thing to express is that my dad, who I mentioned left at two, came back into my life when I was in my mid-30s. I hadn't met him, right? Very successful entrepreneur, very successful, had his ups and downs as well. Okay. Uh, you know, that, that thing I said about scratching the itch about being an entrepreneur, I actually had it in my, in my DNA, if you like. I just didn't know it existed. He came back quickly and passed away suddenly. I was closing a massive private equity deal. Was it, was it a positive reconnection? Like he came back? Yeah, and- massive. So, okay. so to share the story a little bit, um, he came back into my life around the time I was having my first daughter. He was around for a couple of years, but he lived in Australia and I was living in the UK at the time. We met at um, the Vermont 100 mile race in Vermont in the US. And he, was, he said, listen, I'll crew you in that race. Like literally the way I express it is he got to be my dad for that few hours that I ran that race. And then he said, he was massively into fishing. He said, I'm going to take you fly fishing um, around Cape Cod. So we had this two week amazing trip. Everything was great. I'd spent time with him. He was hanging out with my daughter, had my second daughter on the way, all that sort of stuff going on. And um, we finished that trip in this beautiful beach right near Cape Cod, most perfect afternoon you could ever imagine jeff right amazing beautiful water sun the whole piece say goodbye the next day i see him nine months later is the day before he dies of cancer in a hospital bed in melbourne right so we'd connected had this amazing experience he has this 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 disease if you like at the same time i'm closing a big private equity deal it's one of the biggest ones i ever got involved in a 2.3 billion dollar deal and around when that was going on, and I'll get to your answer, I just wanted to share the context. I went to bed one night and I cracked the teeth in the right side of my jaw, the two molars here. Like that. Just like random thing, like you bit a Jolly Rancher or what? Yeah, well, there was nothing in my mouth. I, I literally gripped my or grinded my teeth okay. so hard that it, it broke. And okay. I remember waking up at three in the morning and I was in agony. It was like being punched here in the face. I was full on. And I went to the doctor first and then the dentist and they said, yeah, it's stress. But the reason I share that back to kind of these sliding door moments or or, or epiphanies Mm -hmm. or whatever you want is that was a low point for lots of different reasons. I remember looking in the mirror that night saying, how the hell did you get to this? Because at that point in time, I wasn't showing up well at home. I was stressed. There was all sorts of stuff going on. But what I did about it is interesting. About three weeks after the teeth incident, right, my dad had passed away by this time. Uh, I ended up at a Tony Robbins event in Chicago and at that event, it's called UPW, Unleash the Power Within. At that event, I made a decision to quit private equity, to quit all that world and start to explore my own sort of personal development journey, let's call it that. And that has allowed me since to to just have a, an understanding of how I operate emotionally, whereas beforehand it wasn't like that. And so to your question, long answer, I appreciate, but I now have a set of, of tools, if you like, strategies, techniques, things that I've learned over the last few years, which give me confidence that if anything shows up in my life again, you know, there's some dreadful things that can happen to all of us, but I feel more prepared now than ever emotionally as well as rationally to be able to deal with those things. So I thank you. Thanks for the, the story and for sharing that, that bit about your dad, too. Um, is that why he reconnected with you? Did he know he had cancer and that his days were numbered? No, he, he connected with me before that. The, the whole cancer thing literally was a nine month out of the blue situation. Hmm. 
interesting. And I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I had to go through that. That's, that's, <laughs> I, I lost my mom a couple of years ago and it's just, it's just terrible. So, <laughs> Um, you know what? That's your point, and let me let me make this point for everyone listening. You know, we, we've we've had a couple of different, I suppose, conversations today about where where you have a, a situation hits you really hard, and then you turn it around. I look at him coming back into my life, even for that brief moment. Me learning about his entrepreneurial success. Mm-hmm. You know what it gave me? It gave me a whole new pathway of thinking about what I wanted to do and be. So I believe rightly or wrongly, that he came back to give me the gift of that understanding, which has allowed me to connect with a purpose of what I do now, which is fundamentally different in the way I do it versus what I was doing for the last 15 years or so. So you just said something and, you know, I don't know, maybe if I ever hired a podcasting consultant, they would tell me to be more linear. And that's probably why I never will. Don't do it. I'm not going to do it. So I'm just gonna, I'm just going to go here, right? You just said something that made me think of this thing, and I think maybe there's something there. Um, so you said that meeting your dad uh, and 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 sort of better helped you understand yourself a little better, right? And then your exact words were that helped me connect to what you're doing now, right? Yeah. Um, so in uh, there's a guy, a famous psychologist named Eric Erickson. I don't know if you're familiar, but he had uh, something he called the stages of psychosocial development. And his theory of, of human development was that we go through these stages where we have a psychosocial problem or conflict that we have to resolve. And if we properly resolve it in one stage, then we can go to the next stage. Wow. And, and okay. if we don't, we will be stuck looping and and we'll continue to mature and our life will go on but at some level there'll be this open it's like a video game like we'll be we'll just keep playing the same level and we won't be able to pass it to the next level right so i thought it was really interesting the way you just said it that uh you know finding your father connecting with your father or meeting your father and and i'm put, i'm somewhat putting words in your mouth but it kind of helped yeah. you clarify your identity it is right massively yeah and so so uh erickson's I want to say sixth stage of psychosocial development is called identity versus role confusion. And we're supposed supposed to resolve it in our teens. I mean, say I say supposed to his map has us dealing with that in our teens and it's really figuring out who we are in the world. That's why when you're a teen, your social life is everything. Right. And that once you figure out who you are in the world, the next stage is uh, the conflict is intimacy versus isolation Mm. that once we know who we are and we're no longer confused about our role, we can graduate to the level of having intimate relationships. You use the term connection. Otherwise we end up isolated and alone because we can't connect because we aren't a discrete whole unit with clear identity that, that think of it like we don't have a docking station to connect to something else because we're not clear on who we are. So I'm curious, do you feel like meeting your dad, in Ericksonian terms, helped you get clear on your identity, which unlocked for you the ability, I'm using the term intimacy as proxy for connection, to have a deeper connection with your place in the world that you would not have had if you weren't clear on who you were. Yeah, 100. It's a great, I've never read any of the of his stuff, but 100% that's what happened. Because, okay. you know, back to, we mentioned before. And, about and real quick, how old were you when that happened, you said? Uh, so what are we now? That's a go back eight years. So, so 40? yeah, around 40, it was around 40, 41. So not that long ago. Cause, cause so, yes. but, but, but you know, just to jump in on, on that point, the him coming back into my life and all of those sort of things. And, you know, around that time before he was around and sort of when I was first meeting him again, that's when I was doing all the ultra running. Right. And I look back at it. I mean, I still run a lot these days, but I was, I was using ultra running as, as a way of, of almost disconnecting from pain. Yeah. Right. Running away. So my identity, and I love that because I say on my podcast all the time, you can only scale a business to the level of your identity. And to some extent you can only scale your life as well. Yeah. And the reason it's scale up as kind of a mantra for me is it's about everything that you just described very, very eloquently, but 
I think back now and go, you know, I, I needed to have that uh, set of circumstances happen. First, I had to allow them to happen. Remember, there's decisions I had to make here to allow him to come back into my life and all that. I had to be open to those things, which were going to be painful in an initial context to allow me to break through to connect with what I do now. I don't feel any incongruence with what I do now and what I'm meant to do. Whereas beforehand, I think I was living other people's expectations of what I should be doing. Yeah. By the way, what you just said, that, that feeling of complete congruence between who you are and what you do. If I could wish anything that this show is helping people achieve in life, that would be it. Cool. It's, it's fine. I, I think your potential will be unlocked when you're in complete alignment with who you are and what you do. Um, and, and by the way, as another, another plug for my friend, Larry, I think you're going to love him. He has a saying in the work that he does that, and I'm paraphrasing, paraphrasing, but it basically is that the ceiling of a business is the trauma of its leadership, the unresolved trauma of its leadership. That's cool. I like that as well. Yeah. And so he, <laughs> in his executive coaching and business coaching, essentially what he's doing is trauma work with, lead, yeah. with business leaders. Um, but anyway, so, so then to take this Ericksonian thread a little bit further, and you've already, st- I think, started part of the answer. My question was, if you identify with this, call it delayed identity clarification, and which in Ericksonian terms would be the delayed resolution of role confusion, yeah. unlocking intimacy and congruence and alignment in this kind of cluster of more positive words. And that happened for you when you were 40. What do you think was, what were the, the coping strategies and potentially the price tags that you were paying in your 20s and 30s oh, God. For, for not having that resolution until you were 40? Well, first and foremost, at least I found it. Yeah. <laughs> right. Because, you know, it's the overused um, analogy of the matrix and the whole red and blue pill, which, you know, oh, yeah. gets used all the time. But once you see something, you can't unsee it, right? In my opinion. And I think a lot of people never see it, right? Well, I, for the record, well. I think the vast majority of people have not resolved stage six of the Ericksonian. Conflict. Yeah, and I, and I have no idea what the stages are, but I can tell you, you know, you don't have to go too far from where I live here in the UK on a tube in London and everyone looks like they just want to kill themselves, right? I, sh- I shouldn't laugh. I, I laugh. No, it's not. It's a wrong not, response, but. It's, it is, not, and I get it, but it, and I don't mean it in the way it sounds as a flippant comment. They are lifeless and soulless, right? And the reason I can, I can say that is I was like that, but I can see it from where I am now to where I was then. Right? I can see it. So, you know, to your point, yeah, my 20s and 30s, I had incredibly high levels of success outside looking in. Money, cars, houses, uh, job titles, private equity, crazy stuff that we were doing. You know, anyone looking outside would go, wow, you know, that guy's got his, his shit together, right? However, I wasn't a great husband. I was running a marathon every Sunday, like every Sunday I would do a training marathon, right? Okay. And, and I wasn't really the best dad for my, you know, my kids when they started to come in. I'm I'm grateful for the fact that I managed to find what I'm doing now while they're still young. Right. But, you know, I look at it, I look at it as, as I said, I'll use the term again. It's a gift that it happened and I allowed it to happen because I definitely made some decisions to, 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 to bring that into my life. I'm so glad that I did it at 40-ish because imagine if I hadn't done it. Yeah, I, I can because I can imagine if I had, hadn't done it. And I think, I think you and I sort of are intuitively resonating about what it is. Yeah. But I'm curious if you could expound on it for maybe someone else is like, what is he talking about? What happened? Yeah. What actually happened at 40 that is this trajectory change yeah I'll, I'll, I'll try and express it the best way i can express it but it's i think it's one of those things that you have to go through in your own way to really understand it but i'll try and do it like a before and after for people so my life before i started to explore these different thoughts and feelings right and being more connected because i was very sort of head-led versus heart-led i didn't really understand how emotions are important in different ways. I probably understood it from a relationship perspective if I needed something, but not how it affected me. Ooh. Yeah. Very, very candid self-awareness there. I understand that. I'm just going to like quantify that. I understand emotions to when they're useful because I need something from someone. 
Damn. Thank and that's you. what you get trained in the world. In the world of private equity, oh, my God. It's like, people joke. I've got this little thing here, which is, if you ever watch Billions, there's a, a character oh, yeah. called uh, Bobby Axelrod, right? Yeah. Oh, okay. And so, here he is. I've got him. Because people used to call me this. I was that guy, right? I was clinical, right? And very good at what I did. And I still have that edge if I need it, but the balance I have around it these days is very different. So I can, I understand the power of something like that versus also, you know, the pain it can cause. But, but back to your question, because it's an important question. I want people to get this before we finish up. What, what I was like beforehand was living in a shell of who I, who I thought I should be and who everyone expected me to be. And after a while of living that, which you could call a lie, you find it hard to break out because that's just who you are. So it comes back to identity, mm -hmm. right? Now, I, the reason I knew I wasn't living to who I really was is because things were falling apart around the edges, right? relationships, my health wasn't great. The teeth was one part, but I wasn't healthy, right? And all was, of was part of that related to the running that you were pushing yourself to an extreme that was unhealthy? Yeah. And I think it was also um, stress related stuff as well. Like I, I prided myself on just being a hard ass, yeah. right? In all sorts of ways. But after a while, that's if that's not who you are 100% and you're trying to live that lie, I, I honestly believe that diseases in this world manifest in physicality, right? If you hold on to pain or you hold on to uh, turmoil or lies or trauma too much, that's when it starts to manifest itself. So the teeth thing for me was a manifestation of trauma that yeah. I was creating by living in this world that wasn't really who I wanted to be. So that's the before. The after, when I, when I you know, going to a Tony Robbins event for me was like, oh, you've got to be kidding, what a dick. What do I turn up to that and see jump around a room, right? So, you know, I don't think that now, but that was my beforehand, like, you know, who's this guy? Having gone into that world and actually started to listen to what was going on, and I've done a heap of stuff since, so it's not just about Tony. I, real I realized that I could be successful by having both achievement and fulfillment, whereas beforehand it was achievement. Yeah. And, and you know what? There was one quote, again, a very overused quote in the world of personal development, but it, it literally stopped me in my tracks when I was in Chicago. And that was the whole Zig Ziglar, you know, you can get anything you want in life if you help enough people get what they want and need, something like that. Yeah. You know what? I never heard that before, Jeff. And so my big belief change, the one thing that made the biggest shift is when I came back from that event, I said, you know what? I'm going to build my life around that quote. I'm going to go out there and see if I can help more people without any major expectation, which is why I started my podcast. Actually, that was all, it all came off the back of that event. And I'm just going to share my story and see if it helps people. And then in the back of my mind, I was like, maybe I can turn this into something that also allows me to have a business and do things that I want to do, but I'm helping people and I can still be successful. How can I do that? And that was the big change. And so it was, it was scary and it wasn't easy, but, I knew that that was the path because I started to unlock that in myself, whereas before I repressed it. Well, it's actually kind of uncanny how alike the story you just told of your transformation at 40 is to the story my audience knows, at least some of them know fairly well of my own, the similar transformation at 39, <laughs> wow. um, which is ironic. Uh, same where, where literally I went to market to experimentalize, and I've referenced that exact Zig Ziglar quote. I wonder what wow. would happen if instead of just paying lip service to this, I actually committed to it. I wonder what would happen. And by the way, the last four years, by far the most successful four years of my life, by far the most fulfilled and joy-filled four years of my life have been a, an, a, an outgrowth of committing to exactly what you just said. That's really weird. committing to it though, not just talking about it. We all talk about it, but like to do it in the, in the legitimate fear that if it doesn't work, like, 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 like there actually has to be a chance of it not working or you have to entertain that. Like you can't try to control all the variables to serve others, but guarantee that you get served too. You, you actually have to trust the process or else it can't work. Yeah. And that's, that's what's scary. And the, the, I suppose the, the thing that allowed me to really lean into that was because I went through that experience. So, so I, I sort of knew that if I didn't make that change, I, I could see what the repercussions were going to be. 
So back to my point around, you know, when I was fat and I became thin and all that sort of stuff, mm-hmm. it was a similar experience, but, but much deeper. I was like, shit, I've now seen the world in a different way. I, I know that the way I've been going is not going to serve me. In fact, I'm probably going to be dead sooner rather than later if I keep doing this pathway. I have to change. I don't know how it's going to work, but I'm just going to lean into a different belief system. And it literally was this idea that, you know, what you think is, you know, become things. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to genuinely believe in a different way of operating and lean into it. And I had to reprogram myself. I mean, that's really what it was. I had to put myself in a different environment. You know, we talked about the importance of who you surround yourself with. I had to get myself into different groups, get different mentors. You know, these are things I never did before, Jeff, ever. In fact, I would have laughed at people who even suggested that they were good things. But I, I got myself into those different networks, those different environments. And then I started to see the world differently which gave me the, I suppose, the confidence and the momentum to continue. You know, as you were saying that, I had this thought go through my mind that was like, the, the beauty of pain is that it opens the mind. But then I immediately rebutted myself and said, but also sometimes it seals the mind shut. I think pain, pain gives you a choice. And in your case, you were going through a certain amount of pain, some of it physical, some of it uh you know, non-physical and you allowed that to open your mind to some stuff that, like you said, you would have laughed at previously, but yeah, uh, it, and th- thank goodness you did. Right. Cause sometimes I think people can go the other way with pain too. Yeah. I needed, I needed a new solution, I think, and I needed to grab onto something. And in fairness, I did have a few people around me that were suggesting I go in, in this direction. So I had a friend of mine who was very successful growing up who retired before he was 30 as in a multimillionaire, very happy, all that. And he said, dude, you got to lose all this macho alpha stuff and just go and get yourself, become, get yourself in a place where you feel vulnerable, not necessarily to express it, but it will be cathartic to you. And, and, you know, when I started my podcast, the first 25, 30 episodes, there's no interviews. There's me into a mic sharing different perspectives and stories. And I tell you what, it, was, it wasn't really about getting listeners and it still isn't really to this day. It was about me getting the stuff in my head out, which made me make sense of it. And that's what it is. It's almost like journaling. And that, and that was definitely part of the process of me starting to recreate what I'm doing now. Just to be clear, Nick's podcast with over half a million downloads across 130 countries is not about getting listeners. And I'm not saying that to be cheeky. I'm saying that because I think it illustrates a really useful principle that people are drawn to authenticity, not to marketing. Yeah. And and it will never be, you know, I've never ever tried to make money from the podcast, you know, in terms of anything. And I get asked to do ads and all that. So I may one day, but that wasn't the reason for it. The reason I did it was to put myself into a different place, maybe an uncomfortable place, but also back to my point around helping people. And I, I say this all the time, you know, we've got different businesses that we do different things, but you don't have to ever come to work with me, right? Or my businesses, everything that I've learned over 15 years in private equity and corporate MA, whatever is in the podcast, hmm. everything. So if you want it, it's there, right? And, and I know that it's helped, you know, thousands and thousands of business owners because they reach out and say that. And that, that's the shift that I wanted to make and the validation as well helping enough people get meet, get what they want. That's right. For free, even. Um, yeah. Okay. Hey, listen, I, I appreciate your time. I know we've gone a few minutes longer than we were allotted for, um, and I'm not insensitive to that. Let's, let's wrap up. Please let the world know. Obviously, you have to scale up your business or scale. It's called Scale Up with Nick Bradley is the podcast. That's uh, you right. have scale up your business consultancy. Let the world know where they can go find you and your businesses and your content and all great things, Nick Bradley. Please. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, the, the podcast is Scale Up with Nick Bradley now. It used to be called Scale Up Your Business, but we changed okay. it because I've got all sorts of awesome people coming on now, which is great. Um, if they want to kind of reach out and learn more about me, my, my personal website is um, scaleupwithnickbradley.com. And then my two business websites are scale up your, uh, sorry, suib.global or highvalueexit.com. So obviously that's where we help people exit their companies and stuff like that. So reach out, get in touch. Always happy to hear from people. What, what about, are you active on social? Uh, yeah, I'm on LinkedIn mainly, a bit of Instagram. I haven't cracked Instagram yet. <laughs> LinkedIn's where I hang out the most. So it's um, at 
the real Nick Bradley or at the Nick Bradley, I think. Anyways, that's that's how that's how good my Instagram handles are, mate. You have to plug them into the show notes. It's the real Nick Bradley, and we'll we'll put it in the show notes. I'll tell you, man. I don't know if you want to crack Instagram. I, I, I cracked it in the last few months by accident because I made a few reels that that posited opinions that people vehemently disagreed with and liked to <laughs> argue about in the comments. And that's literally the key. If you want to blow up on Instagram, say something that that starts a fight. And, but like, is that really what we want to be spending our time is like trying to provoke people? So I don't know. I think that I'd rather, I'd rather win the LinkedIn algorithm than Instagram. Yeah. And, and I like to, I like to speak, uh, speak at events and stuff like that. I, I, you know, there's, there's a thing about almost as much as I want to help as many people as I can. I also like doing it in, in the way that I feel is again, congruent with who I am. Right. So you, you, you want, know, you want to be the change you want to see in the world, not sell out to it. That's right. Yeah. Awesome. Something like that. Something like that. Yeah, man, what a, what a great conversation. I'm so grateful to, uh, to finally get to talk to you directly. We know of each other from, you know, swimming in, in overlapping waters, but uh, this has been a lot of fun, man. Thanks for being on the show. Yeah, Jeff, thank you. Amazing, uh, inquisitive thoughts and questions too. There's not many people I get to speak with who kind of go that deep down the rabbit hole. So I do appreciate that as well. Thank you, sir. You heard it here, folks. We're, we're a podcast at the, at the, in the depths of the rabbit hole. Hey, it's Jeff here. If you liked this episode of Unlock Your Potential, it would mean so much if you would like and share the episode on whatever platform you're listening or viewing on. And if you really like what we're doing here and you enjoy this podcast, please consider leaving a review. There is so much work that goes into these episodes and you leaving a positive review lets us know that that work is reaching people and especially it helps us reach other people. Your review could be the reason that someone else decides to tune in, check out this podcast and unlock their potential and ultimately level up the quality of their life. So thank you, thank you, thank you so much for your support and for listening, especially if you like or share or leave a review. Thank you for helping us spread the word and thank you for unlocking your potential to go make the world and your world a better place.